You're listening to the Hard Men Podcast, reclaiming biblical masculinity in a world of softness. Well, welcome to this episode of the Hard Men Podcast. I, of course, am your host, Eric Kahn. And today we have a very, 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 very special guest, the mustachioed man himself. We have Pastor Brian Sauve. Brian, how are you? That was five varies. Did you like that? I think I'm only worth maybe one on, a, no. on my best day. I was holding back. <laughs> well, I'm doing good, man. Thanks for having me on. It's been too long. Yeah, man, it absolutely has. So I, I want to ask you a few things, Brian. We're going to talk about today a very easy subject matter. People love to talk about it. No big deal. Modesty. Oh, yeah. So we're going to talk about that. But first, I need to ask you a few questions. Consider these, Brian, like icebreakers. Okay, okay, I'm ready. So number one, you've been doing pretty well with your psalm. What, what did you call it? Composing? Conducting? What's, what's the official term here? Just think of the, whatever the most regal term. Conducting <laughs> sounds pretty good, so I'm going to go with that. Brian Sauve, conductor of Ooh, psalms. Can I, I do want one of those, the sticks for uh, yeah. conducting crowds of people. I think that can be a rein. So Brian... You've done really well with the Psalms. It seems like it's been taken off. I, th- I think I saw the, yeah, like 250,000 downloads. Is that right? Yeah. Just today, actually, I looked and we passed 275. So what? it's been good. Way more so than I, I expected. Yeah. I was going to ask you about that project when you started. Any idea that it would, would be what it is now? I thought that it would be, I, I did it just for my own church. Like, hey, let's help. Let's put a resource at home for people at family worship to learn songs that were going to be singing on Sundays and um, a few a few guys and you know, theologians shared it. Doug Wilson shared it through his content thing. Cluster Muster, uh, you shared it and Michael Foster shared it. And pretty soon people were actually listening to the music. And I was like, man, I really wish I was better at this because now people are actually listening to this music. <laughs> yeah. But it's been, it's been fun. That's awesome. Um, in terms of plans for the future, Anything that you're looking to do next? I know, I think I saw the other day that you were kind of had some behind the scenes footage. I guess just give us a feel for what you're working on. What, what can people expect? Yeah, I'm, I'm really working right now. So I've done some EPs, songs we're singing, Bright the Rider, Psalm 37 and four different songs. Those have all been six or fewer. And I'm, I'm working through right now, writing and recording a full length album. So probably... 11 to 15 songs, maybe 10 or 11 psalms, probably 12 psalms, actually, and then um, a few original hymns to add to that as well. So I've got a couple of them done. Most of them are written, and I'm recording that now. It's been fun. Yeah, it's beautiful. Looking forward to it. How many of those, by the way, Brian, how many of those are Chris Tomlin remakes? <laughs> you got me. You Dang, got me. I, you know... My, the only thing that was protecting me was I thought people who want to listen to Psalms probably don't know Chris Tomlin's music, so I'm safe. You, you are probably safe on that front, that is for sure. Which, which was the giveaway? Was, was it when I added the three choruses and two bridges to Psalm 23, or was it the skinny jeans? Um, I, I say the skinny jeans got me. They get me every time. Yeah. Um, <laughs> also, I heard you practicing in falsetto a lot, so I thought, well... yeah. So That's kind of kind of go one of two ways here. <laughs> Neither of them good. 
Neither of them good. Neither of them good. Well, <laughs> Brian, the second thing I want to ask you, uh, this is before we talk about modesty. This is another light, easy subject. Sure. But I wanted, you're a pastor, you preach on a regular basis. I want to get your take, what's going on in the SBC. I want to ask you about the sermon plagiarism stuff. Um, it's not the first time this has come up. You know, we had it with mm-hmm. uh, Mark Driscoll. I can't remember how many years ago, but that, that came up. Um, I saw recently that maybe J.D. Greer and Matt Chandler were actually using the same group. When he got in trouble for it, they were like, oh, no, we can't do this. Yeah. Um, that, that's so bad. Turns out all these guys are, are doing that. So first of all, Brian, where do you get your sermons from? Um, mm-hmm. what, you know, uh, or, or am I mistaken? Are you actually writing your own sermons? Oh, no, no, no. I use Beth Moore. Study oh, no. studies, and that, I, I just that is kinda, unfortunate. I have a secretary, uh, cop, just write them out for me from those. So that's not no. Good. Th- th- this is a problem, man. This is like it, it. There, there's so many levels that it's bad. It's bad because it's lying. The people obviously expect you to be preaching a sermon that you developed yourself using yeah. a com using commentaries, and they they expect you also to be, you know, relying on good resources. You're not just standing alone in church history you're standing on the shoulders of theologians and the church and that's good honoring your father and mother but you're lying there you're maybe just as bad you're failing to interact with the text in a living devotional way so now you're going and you're preaching things that you haven't how could you have had the time to take and get those into the grain of your own soul and respond and obey them and interact with this spirit breathed out scriptural glory. It's just bad, man. It's so it's, it's lazy. So no, I, I am still one of those old fashioned guys. I write, I write my own sermon. Yeah. It's interesting too. Um, I've served as pastor, um, and preached quite a bit. One of the things that, that I recognize on a weekly basis, Doug Wilson talked about this actually, I think in wordsmithy, a book on writing, but the same principle applies, which is that if, like, if I'm preaching and I keep repeating the same things, or I'm not really doing any of the study, I'm just copying other things people have said, I, I just have to rely on like the rehash, um, and it gets kind of stale. People are like, okay, he keeps saying the same thing every week. And so part of it is, I always viewed preaching, and I, I think I probably got this from like Martin Lloyd-Jones, Preaching and Preachers, mm-hmm. but I always viewed preaching as like, you're studying, you're praying through it, you're reading the commentaries, you're wrestling with it. Like God and his Holy Spirit is doing something to you as the speaker and as the preacher during that process. None of that happens when you're just regurgitating somebody else's message, right? Yeah, yeah. You know what it makes you? Not a hard man. No, no. Soft man. That's a beautiful tie-in, Brian. That's soft. That is soft. <laughs> that and that is very soft. It is. It, I mean, it's effeminate <laughs> i'm sorry you just yeah. that guy needs to repent and step down and be disciplined last question on this are you a little bit surprised that people i mean when when it's basically came out that this is sort of like the steroid scandal in baseball it, it came out and now it's kind of like well here's why it's it was okay this time like they're all kind of defending their own uh, i'm curious if you saw a problem there but also what what if they're if they're set on like we're just going to keep plagiarizing like what do you think should happen to these guys what should they do and what should happen to them oh man well do you think waterboarding 
waterboarding that might make question to a hard man. Um, you know, I think there's multiple issues there. If you're, if if they defend it and it becomes fashionable now to defend it because your guy's in power, yeah, uh, I would leave the SBC. I mean, so fast. I'm not yeah. in the SBC, so I can't leave it. I might join it just to leave it over this. <laughs> just to leave it. <laughs> no, I think you should, and I think you should because they've shown deep hypocrisy at the, yeah. the, at the highest levels. And the, the thing about leadership in a big organization, really any organization, is that they're the guy at the wheel. They're pointing where your ship is going. And when you affirm them as leaders, you're saying, I want more people like that yeah. in, my, on, in everything below it. So you, you just can't, you can't have that. You can't have seminary presidents and pastors and, and really functionally, I think in a lot of these cases, these megachurch pastors function more like bishops than they do like pastors. But yeah. you, know, you can't have these leaders of leaders going out and replicating themselves like cancer without ultimately you joining, joining yourself to that and saying, I'm going to support that. I want more of that. I'm going to give my money to that. I'm going to give my allegiance to that. And, and, and there's a temptation to say, well, for unity, let's stay. And I would say no, because they, you didn't move, they did. You know, yeah. they left you. You're just formalizing what they've done at that point. Yep. You, you, 10 years ago, this would have been unthinkable, even 10 years ago in the SBC. I think, like you said, the Driscoll thing was probably 2013, 2014. Yeah, it's been um, a hot minute. Was that his books mainly? And there were um, some study resources. It was, yeah. It was his books. They were using missions money to purchase the books so that they would oh, yeah. climb on the bestseller list, all that stuff. But I, I was part of Acts 29 churches before, and it was like that sort of thing happened at the, the micro level with guys who were not famous but wanted to be like Mark Driscoll, where it was like they would use seminary students, and there'd be like six guys who did all the research and read all the books, and then they would, and he would be like, hey, dude, give me your notes and tell me what the talking points. And literally they would essentially write the sermon like five guys would. And he would just take the best material and, yeah. and regurgitate. But yeah, it's been a while. Right. I thought people came down hard then. Um, but yeah, different tune this time around for sure. Yeah, It's a shame. It is. It is. Brian, I want to talk now about modesty. So... This is the time of year. I, I noticed this um, pretty much everywhere you go. You go to a baseball game. You go downtown to eat at a restaurant. You go to the local pool. Um, you go pretty much anywhere. You know, the weather has turned warm. And with that, people are like, I no longer need to wear clothing. And particularly women are like, it's okay for me to not wear clothing. But some of this, Brian, as we de delve into it, I, I get it that it's coming from the pagan culture. Um, that kind of makes sense. But what I've seen a lot of actually is a lot of Christian people, particularly on social media, um, but a lot of people, it's like, you know, teenage girls, like fathers who are pastors, elders, seminary professors, like you name it, like their daughters are wearing bras and Daisy Dukes and they're like putting this, it's even worse probably because you're putting it on social media. But I, I'm sure pastorally you see this. Why is it such an important thing to address? Uh, in the church, particularly at this time of year. Yeah, it is. It's very important that it's not just something that sits on your, you know, like statement of faith. And it's usually not even our statement of faith. Right. But it just sits as like an assumption 
Um, and, and it's important for a couple reasons. One, because our a lot of the folks in our churches are like the Ninevites in that they don't know their right hand from their left hand. Um, just because of how much our culture has moved on this issue. Yeah. It, there's there's not many periods in history. I mean, I'm I'm not a historian. I'm sure a historian would, would go, oh, yeah, sure, this t- happened at this time. But think of how quickly in our culture we've gone from the concept of wearing um, pants as a woman to, and, and that being kind of like, kind of shocking, to women walking around in thongs and bras and calling it swimwear, right? Right. That's like under a century. That's, that's, Lexi, my wife just showed me a video of, it was a women reacting video, and they were reacting to this mannequin in a shop window, and it was black and white. It looked like it was in uh, England in, you know, maybe the 50s or something. And uh, they, these women were reacting to a dress, and all it was was a, it was still a dress, and it just had kind of a scoop neck. So it came down, and it showed some breast. And the women were like, that's disgraceful. No, absolutely not. <laughs> it's disgusting, that is. <laughs> Every one of them. Yeah. And the new, the, they, they looked embarrassed to even talk about it to today. So, so our people are natives of this culture where they're thinking of the female body in terms of self-expression, autonomy, power. This is your power. They're thinking about it in all of these ways, sort of in a default setting yeah. that are... They don't even realize massively contrary to the anthropological underpinnings of the Christian faith and what we believe a woman is and is for and what we believe the body is and how it should be honored and how it should be used. So, so pastors need to address it for that reason, and they also need to display it in their families and make sure that they're leading the way in having these conversations with their daughters, with their sons, with their wife, and... Uh, Really understanding the why, you know, why, why do we, not just in a prudish way, but why, why do we care about this and, and how do we get the lines that we get? Yeah, that's one of the interesting questions. I've asked a few people taking some straw polls um, and just trying to get a feel for like how many Christians have heard a sermon on modesty um, and really seen that fleshed out. And I haven't heard of anyone who said, oh yeah, our pastor you know, preached on that. Of course, I didn't talk to anybody in your church, Brian. But oh, uh, it is uh, definitely, a, I think, a cultural issue. One of the things I want to ask you um, is, you know, that's obviously affected the church, but as you look at the pastoral side of it and you say, okay, n- now we've got to address it, it is a hot-button issue, and people get very... Like, this is the kind of thing that people would leave over. Because ultimately what you have to do, it seems like, is you have to say, you, it becomes a like, hey, you can't wear that here. Mm-hmm. And people seem to get very offended. I'm curious if you have any thought as to why that is. Hmm. Yeah, the strain of when you combine that cultural, um, just not knowing your left hand from your right hand, moral ambiguity, the sea of moral ambiguity that people live in, and also just hostility to the Christian faith on a, on, on a moral level. When you combine that with a default um, antinomianism, every yeah. man is his own pope. You know, every man. I'm in a relationship with Jesus, not a religion man. I, you know, God. If God has a problem with this, He'll tell me. Usually through feels and 
you know, spiritual liver shivers or something like that. Yeah. You hear that all the time when you're pastoring. People are like, you know, I just, I, I, my daughter wears a, a mini skirt and when she bends over, you can see her bottom, but the Lord hasn't told me it's a problem. And you're like, yeah. well, how, how would you expect the Lord to tell you that? You know, so when you get, or... yeah, like, like, I, right now, the Lord is telling you through an elder of the church who's, you know, <laughs> yeah. appointed to teach and have a th- doctrinal authority in the church. So it's like when you get those two things, moral ambiguity, just complete moral decline, and you couple that with this shield of antinomianism and um, like uh, a misidentification of obedience to the moral law with pharisaicalism or um, with religion, then obviously people are going to be trained to not just modesty, but anything. People are going to be trained to say, we're under grace. We're not under law. They're going to respond with these really asinine, theologically unjustified statements, but they'll also unfortunately be convinced that they're true. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a huge problem. And, and again, that's part of the reason that I think it needs teaching on is so that we actually have a biblical theology and understanding. Yeah. And I, I want to ask you about that in just a moment, mm-hmm. but before we get into the theology of modesty, one of the things that I've noticed on Twitter or you know, from feminist-leaning women that I've had this discussion with, um, is that I would say that most of the problem on this issue, it seems to be like the way women dress. Mm-hmm. Um, they seem to have, at the same time, I, I hear a lot of like, I don't know if it's naivety, I'm not sure what it is, but they'll bristle at that and they'll be like, well, men should learn how to control their lusts. And, well, why don't you address the men? You know, and of course, that's yeah. kind of the thing on Twitter is if you address A, they say, well, what about B? But <laughs> yeah, I, as I thought about this, Brian, I was like, well, generally speaking, in most of the circles I've been in, like, yeah, every now and then I've seen a guy and it's like, dude, come on. I, I'm not sure what you're getting at here. But for the most part, correct me if I'm wrong, it seems like the issue is women either sh- showing too much cleavage too much butt i can see your cheeks like what do, do, do you think that's true yeah and i have kind of sidebar um convictions around male modesty as well that i think yeah. are important for the men to be consistent on as well and like just an example would be you know men going to the gym with shirts where the the whole <laughs> armpit area is cut out it's like why are you doing that well for the same reason that a peacock has big green feathers because yeah. it's he's saying look at me and what do you think he's trying to get so so there's a real issue there but i think that the reason that most people with eyes in their head that aren't pretending like they don't see what they see would agree man this is a much bigger issue for w- with respect to women's garb than men's and it comes down to an anthropological truth i think that is obvious power i think you can derive it from natural law but you, and I'll, I'll show it in scripture too but it's uh, this, the way you could summarize it, and this isn't original to me, I can't remember where I heard this first, but it's that men love to love, they love to want, and women love to be wanted. Mm-hmm. So you think about how men were made to go out and win a woman, take dominion, expand the borders of a kingdom, you know, till the earth, bring forth order from chaos, fight the dragon. That is a desire to go and win. So they want things. They want to go and get. Okay, women were made by God to be a helper to a man, to be won by a man, to be uh, impressed, to respect a man. And so they love to be wanted. You could even 
say that men love to lust and women love to be lusted after. Mm-hmm. So, so there, there is a same category of sin that can be committed by both men and women, but it will look different when it's being committed by a woman versus a man. Right. A woman is going to sin in this area by flaunting that which should be honored and kept guarded for the marriage garden and marriage bed as a look at me, want me, desire me, fight for me. It's a perversion of a good, just like all sin is parasitic. And and the men, when they're lusting after the woman, they're doing the same thing. But the way I derive this scripturally is I would just point to Jesus saying, Jesus says, when you lust after a woman in your heart, you've committed adultery. He does not say the the other, the opposite. He doesn't say women. Why is that? It's not because women should lust, but he's, he's speaking into weakness. You know, he's speaking into peculiar temptation. So in a nutshell, I think that those are some of the foundations to why what is obvious to all of us is obvious to, to all of us. Yeah, I, I think that's a, a really good point. Um, it kind of gets to the next thing I want to ask you about, Brian, which is sort of unpacking uh, a theology of modesty. Uh, again, so that for Christians, we want to know what Scripture teaches, not just like Brian's opinion, yeah. Eric's opinion, but what does Scripture teach? And, and the first thing I'll say is, I'm about to ask you that question, is mm-hmm. what I've noticed is I hear a lot of people say, well, the Bible doesn't say anything about modesty. Oh, yeah, you hear that all the time. Um, uh, uh, people will sometimes say, well, the, the passages <laughs> in the New Testament about the way women dress, that's about being rich and ostentatious. That doesn't apply to me or anyone else that I know. Yeah, um, I can still dress three. like a whore. I can do that. Yeah. Um, so start to unpack for me, Brian, like what, where would you start with a theology of modesty? What does scripture say? Yeah. Well, and, and if you follow the route back on that objection, so 1 Peter 3, 3, don't mm-hmm. let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of jewelry. That's true. And actually more directly, that passage has to do with women locating their most important glory in their appearance, which is yeah. a sin. And they're doing it through braiding of hair and putting on of jewelry. That's still true, by the way. Like that passage does not absolutely forbid jewelry or braiding hair. It's, it's, a, it's a, one of those value passages where yeah. what kind of adorning are you trusting in? Well, don't let it be this one. But follow that route back. I would agree that that passage does not primarily directly address how much cleavage you can show, <laughs> right. which is what the objection is. The passage doesn't say that I can't wear leggings. What do you, you know? The, that's the objection. And parallel passages, too, are, are like that. Um, but trace it back down. Again, what is the root sin that we're talking about with both immodesty of cle- you know, too much breast out and of letting your adorning be external and braiding of hair and expensive jewelry? It's a flaunting, it's an ostentatious, want me, desire me to everyone. It's saying to the whole world, it's saying to the other women, envy me. Look how beautiful I am. All the men want me. Your husband wants me. You see, there's one female sin. And it's saying to the whole world, you know, desire my beauty, all of that, when that should be a private gift that is given to your husband in the safety of, of covenant. Right. To where there is a, so instead of a partial uncovering to the whole world, there should be a total uncovering to your husband where the, the shame of nakedness has been reversed. In, think about the Song of Solomon language of a garden, a walled garden with a well in the middle. And, and there's a lot of sexual imagery in this too. But anyway, 
that I digress. You can edit that <laughs> yeah. part out. Yeah. It's a little explicit. Uh, Not think about that. Show, that's Edini. <laughs> that's right. Oh, that's right. We're on hard men. This is um this is Edenic imagery. This is going back to garden. It's when nakedness with a could be enjoyed without shame. Marriage does that. The gospel does that, and so marriage as a parable of the gospel does that. So you can see how immodesty of uh, and not immodesty of braided hair and expensive jewels, but immodesty of uncovering yourself, your nakedness, to use biblical language, to the world, is a perversion of that. It's, there's no exclusivity to this covenant. There is nakedness with shame. But I'm shameless, and so I'm going to pretend like there's no shame. I'm going to harden my conscience. So biblically, when you're developing a theology of modesty, it, I'm perfectly fine saying that passage you think isn't about honoring your body with modest attire, it actually at the root is. There's a shared root. But even more directly, what I would say is you're just not reading the Bible properly because what you're doing is you're, you're saying for the Bible to address how much cleavage or butt I can show, it must have a passage that describes that concept in 21st century English. And it's like, that's not how the Bible works. It does address it. I, I think, Brian, yeah, I was going to say like, when I was in high school, they probably don't do this anymore, but I remember I kind of went to a traditional high school and they're like, your tank top or your bra strap has to be three fingers wide. And I do think that's part of the problem is people are looking for yeah. that kind of passage. Yeah. But in general, that's not the way God's instruction in his law works, right? No, no. That, what that, that is doing is it's saying, how close can I How get close to? can I come to this? That's like taking the command not to murder and saying, but can I beat the hell out of people? <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. like can i like can i can i gouge his eye out the, well there's a law against that too you know it's like how close if you put your hands down your fingertips should not extend past the hem of your dress yeah what if she's got really short arm like it just yeah it's laughable because it, it what it does is it it gets into fussy rule making and fence building instead of understanding the reason for the for a thing yeah and and the biblical reason behind what I would call commands to, as we think of them, commands to modesty and covering, they're about nakedness. They're about the biblical admonition over and over not to expose the nakedness of someone whose nakedness does not belong to you or to expose your nakedness to somebody to whom it does not belong. Right? Yeah. Nakedness is a euphemism for sexual, it's, it's a sexual act for you to expose your nakedness. Well, what is exposing your nakedness? If I can reasonably discern your sexual organs, you know, in generally the way that this passage was interpreted until or these concepts were interpreted until about 10 minutes ago culturally <laughs> was that the space between your knees and your shoulders was your nakedness. Right. And so if you expose those publicly, you're sinning and you're sinning in a serious way. And it's right. a sexual sin that you're committing. Yeah, it's really interesting because I remember some years ago, even reading and watching some documentaries on sociology, psychologists, and they would even point to um, specific ways that, you know, dress is obviously, quite obviously meant to be provocative. So mm -hmm. if you think about things like, well, the whole reason you have a push-up bra and a top that goes, you know, that exposes a lot um, is to be provocative. And it gets back to this issue of we all... If we're being honest, like you said, if we're being honest about what we see, we all see that. I mean, it, it's, it's very plainly obvious. 
the the hard thing becomes when people are trying to argue against what's obvious and say, yeah, well, you can't, yeah. you don't know that that's what's happening. But, you know, maybe behind closed doors or what people think to themselves, there, there's a reason powerful rich guys always have like kind of a, you know, trophy wife type person that they parade around. And it's a status symbol. They want other people to, yeah. like you said, other men to lust after other women to wish they were her, be her, all that stuff. Yeah. So part of this argument, I, what I'm getting at is we also have to get back to the, the kind of arguments that are from nature and like the cow goes moo, right? We mm-hmm. all know that uncovering nakedness is doing something, right? <laughs> yeah. It's doing two things, both bad. One, it is desensitizing men to the glory of, the, of feminine nakedness. Right. It's de- so it's dulling the joys of the marriage bed. So for a man who grew up in a modest society, let's say that he grew up in Puritan New England, and then he went on his marriage, into his, you know, on his, the eve of his marriage, the eve, his marriage night, wedding night. Wedding night, that's what, what I'm What is that thing called? <laughs> what is this? Uh, and he, uh, he sees for the first time you know, his glorious, naked, beautiful wife. It does not matter if she is a six by Vogue or Victoria's Secret standards. Right. She's like a 15 to him. Doesn't even matter. She's glorious because she's a naked woman. And he's like, I've never, I've only, it's like a man who eats steak who's only ever had tofu. It's just, whoa. And when everything is sexually charged, when nakedness is on display everywhere, you it descent it's it's like the same the same thing that happens with this really weird thing that happens in modern society, erectile dysfunction due to pornography use. How gay is that? Men yeah. can't actually have sex with their wife their wife anymore because they can't get aroused without looking at pornography. Like that's a huge medical issue today. Why is and, that? And in in young men, I mean, it's not. Yeah, very young. Men. It used to be the thought that like erectile dysfunction was like an older man's thing, but. Man, in counseling through the show, people I talk to, the number of guys who are like, you know, I've had hardcore porn use for 10 years and actually it's hard for me to find my wife attractive. It's hard for, you know, Mm -hmm. all those things. And it's like exactly what you said. I think my advice always is, well, you, A, you have to cut that off because you've got to starve those lusts. But there's a very real physiological thing that, you know, like with porn as a good example, where you always have to be upping the ante, like the, yeah. the, the, whatever the drug rush in your brain or whatever is, mm-hmm. it's like, it's never enough. So you always have to, you know, be doing Something more. weirder, more extreme. Yeah. More, and, more, more. And, and a huge part of the problem, Brian, is you go out in culture and like you said, there's this desensitization, you know, that, we like the standards, I think, even in my lifetime, I think about like 15 years ago when mm-hmm. like if some like if a girl would have tried to leave the house, a teenage girl with, you know, a crop top and yoga pants on her, like dad would have come unglued today. That's common, you, go you know, common fare. So my question yeah. for you, Brian, is when you get into the particulars and you're like now you're dealing with application, are there certain principles you use? Like somebody... You know, I know, I know you've talked about yoga pants and everybody loved that message and it always yeah, goes well, yeah, right? They, they love it when I, when I apply the text in the <laughs> sermon uh, via yoga pants so you can't wear them. How do the you make the are. connection to something like 
And I'm just thinking of things that are very common, you know, yoga pants being one of them. How, how would you make the application there? So here's what I would say, because it's another one of those where people want the rule to be stated in, in the Bible, where it says, thou shalt not wear leggings. For a pastor to say, thou shalt not wear leggings, it, yeah. as pants, to be clear. Not as, a, you know, under a dress, as pantyhose or whatever. That's, we're talking about leggings are what you are wearing, period, for your pants. If you, I can see your, the entire outline of your body. In some cases, I can see the outline of your vagina. It's right. just there. That's what you're wearing. Okay, the way that I would say, don't do that and why, to someone who objects, I would say it's something similar to like when the Bible warns about loving money. If um, someone were to say, well, and, and I were, you know, say I heard somebody in my church was bathing in uh, Rouge Rosé champagne and uh, they were Instagramming it with a gold grill in their mouth and, you know, diamond rings all over their hands. And, and I said, look, dude, you need to repent because... What you're doing is ostentatiously displaying a love of money. And if they said, where's your verse that says I can't bathe in champagne with diamond rings on my hand and a gold grill in my mouth, <laughs> sir, you legalist. Yeah. I would say that's not how the application of biblical principles works, buddy. If, if, if I say to you the application of the biblical principles don't uncover nakedness, and then I say this clothing to anybody with eyes in their head who's not totally in self-denial, uncovers your nakedness functionally don't do it and it's and, and you look at it and it's the kind of outfit that like we talked about a moment ago causes a physiological response in men where men are literally designed this is a design feature from the lord god who created us that if a man sees a woman in yoga pants and he has not been utterly desensitized by pornography or whatever his body and i'm not talking about voluntarily I'm saying his body is designed to react by becoming ready for sex. That's what his body is going to do. Right. His mind is going to be telling him, get on that. Go get it. Go get it. That's what his mind is telling him to do. He then has to exercise self-control, do all the things he's responsible to do. Even if a naked woman were dropped in front of you, you are responsible to not lust after her. You're still sitting if you do. No amount of excuses excuses you. But when I see someone dressed like that and, and they try to then defend that they're not sex, you know, sexually immodest, it's the, to me, it's as obvious as the guy bathing in a gold bathtub full of champagne with a grill and diamond rings all over his hand and Instagramming it for the world to see. Yeah. It's like, it's just that we have eyes in our head. Are we, are we idiots? Come, I come, we, we had a family actually come to our church. They left another church because... The daughters of the elders were attractive teenage girls, and they paraded around in clothing like this, immodest, and it was never corrected. And they addressed it very patiently and privately with the, with the elders and said, hey, this is an issue. And they're just like, what do you mean? There's no verse. And to me, they were totally justified. Because if you can't see that, I don't trust your moral intuition on anything. Yeah, absolutely. Don't, don't you think, too, Brian, it gets to the issue of um, I had an elder and a pastor tell me this one time, but he was like, there's a lot of things that you'll do as a father that in application of something like not uncovering your nakedness. And your role could be, hey, you know, we're going to wear dresses below, the, whatever it is, you know. Mm -hmm. But to some extent, like, isn't it true that you should, you, that's one of the reasons God gave you the authority over your head as a covering, which is your husband, and then you have elders in the church. So it seems prudent and wise that, you know, on this issue, we should, like, fathers should be making, you know, 
sure that their daughters and their wives are dressing a certain way. And the wife should not be saying to her husband, well, chapter and verse me. Um, yeah, no. Correct? Absolutely correct. She shouldn't for multiple reasons. And one of them is, I mean, let's say that your husband has a request for you that's not even a clear-cut issue of sin. If it's not, ca- if it's not asking, like let's say a husband says, I'm just, I'm not comfortable with you hanging out with that, that woman, that friend of yours anymore. I, I can't put my finger on it, but I just, she's not a good influence. This sounds really controlling in our age, but a, a, a biblical response from a wife is, I trust you. Okay, I won't. Yeah, and, and 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 so many marriage issues have in counseling have come down to this, where a wife thinks that she has to agree before she submits, and that's nonsense. And, and part of it, with with particularly with this issue, uh, is that a husband is actually more equipped than his wife to to understand the issues at heart with female modesty, because female beauty is designed to be aimed at him, and so he can tell better than she can what is and is not likely to you know provoke a sexual response and um so it's totally fair game husbands you should feel absolutely within your rights and actually you should feel required to be that in your home and even if your wife's not on the same page with you that you need to know that you do have the authority to say my daughters will not dress like that and I'll throw their clothes away I'll throw you know not to make the problem worse I'll get them different ones but you know I'll throw the clothes away if, yeah. if, if I don't, it doesn't matter if you agree, this is what's happening. Yeah. And, and I think too, especially it, it, as I kind of came into the patriarchal, biblical patriarchy uh, camp and understanding there, there's a weight there on leadership and submission, right? Like mm-hmm. you're like, wow, um, I really am the head here and I have to make yep. important decisions like that and guard my family. It's part of uh, protecting your daughters, goes back to the garden imagery, that there's a wall around it, there's someone protecting it, um, all those good things. But one of the, I guess one of the good fruits, I guess it's born in, I've seen in a lot of people's lives where wives will actually come to their husbands, like maybe they went shopping, they got some new clothes and they say, hey, we're good, right? I mean, that, that you would care about it. And I think it's like you said, this is another thing just from nature, but where, I mean, a man is just like, is this too provocative? You're going to know almost instantaneously. And I hate to, I, I hate to revert back to like the pornography definition from the Supreme Court, but it's like, I know it when I see it sure. and I don't need a rule, but it's like, okay, you know, mm-hmm. that's too much. You can't. Yep. That's going to be a problem. Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know what I've actually heard a lot, Eric, is um, I've heard this from wives in the church, not as much directly, because this isn't a conversation a lot of the time that I'm going to have one-on-one with a woman necessarily, yeah. but let's say my wife is in conversation with a woman and it comes up like, you know, can I exhort you to think about the attire that you're going out in? I've heard this many times. I know I'm, I'm really uncomfortable, but my husband likes it. Really? He wants me to dress like this. I've heard this more than once. And so there, there is a level to where the men need to repent of their... Some men have it, again, they don't know their left hand from their right hand. So they actually think like that the goal of how their wife dresses day to day should be primarily to be sexually attractive to them. And that's actually not true, men. You should not, that's not the number one goal of how she should dress in a feminine, beautiful way. Like I'm not saying frumpy, 
intentional frumpiness is a failure of stewarding, I think. Um, and, and maybe that's for a different conversation, but the men also need to make sure that they are thinking about this in terms of guarding, like you said, guarding a garden from foxes and serpents, not pleasing themselves first. Go please yourself in your walled garden and then have at it, nakedness without shame. But man, you, you can't be like, oh, honey, man, those jeans, because it's not just leggings. Like, oh, I can, see, I can see it all. Well, hey, no, you need to protect your wife. And a lot <laughs> I of don't want to share that with the whole world. Yeah. Like, it, and, and there is an element like you, the illustration you gave of the guy with the trophy wife, that's, that's something that's happening in a lot of this. Is they're saying there's a fleshly, um, men love to be lusted, men love to lust, and they also love to have conquered and won that which others lust after. Yeah. So there's a status thing going on there that's also just poison. It's pride. It's arrogance. And it needs to be crucified along with all the rest of the things that we're talking about. Yeah, I think that's, that's a really good point. Uh, Brian, one of the other things that um, I was actually podcasting earlier today with your wife uh, on her podcast. Yeah. How'd it go? It was awesome. Good. And, she was uh, excited yeah. to have that conversation. Yeah, we had a great conversation, and Jordan Sparks, um, their podcast, encourage people to check that out. Fruitful and Fearless, right? That's the name of it? Yeah, that's right. That's right. So um, one of the things she said, though, that I, I thought was really helpful, and I want to get your take on it, mm-hmm. um, is that she said it's, it's really helpful in ministering to women. Like, say you see someone that comes to church, and you're like, oh, man, we're going to have to have some conversations. She said it's really helpful often to kind of wrap it in the, it has to be put in the broader context of what is feminine beauty? Mm-hmm. What is it for? You, you've talked about some of these issues, but I, I want to get your take on like, why is that so important? Not just of, you know, Hey, a single mom comes in for the first time and maybe her top is not right. Or, you know, it's immodest, whatever. You don't just walk up and be like, Hey, you whore, get out of here. No. Um, yeah, right. How, so maybe just talk to that issue of wrapping it, that whole conversation in feminine, feminine beauty. What are some of the keynotes you would hit on in terms of feminine beauty? And uh, yeah, just theologically, as yeah. well as, again, arguments from nature. This is, this is so important. And this is important not just for this issue. Um, because anytime that you're calling people to repentance for a sin, you're not just calling them from something, you're calling them to something better. Mm. Yeah, so the huge. nature of sin is that sin is parasitic. Like it gets, sin can't create ex nihilo. It gets into something that God created. And it corrupts and perverts that thing that God made good and very good. So beauty and, and female sexuality and the female body, these are all very good. We don't want to associate in a vacuum female nakedness with shame. It's not, it should not be that way. Female nakedness is glorious and manifestly glorious. If you're, yeah. you know, if you've married and you have a joyful marriage bed that you're honoring and working to keep undefiled, you know it's, it's, it's glorious. And it's supposed to be. So. We need to make sure that when we're telling women to be modest, that we're not telling them that they don't hear us say, be frumpy, be, be ugly, be abhorrent, be, you know, this is where it properly enters the man's court. When a woman is dressed modestly, but beautifully, and he goes and lusts after her, he's now sinning doubly (laughs) because he can't say she just threw it in front of me. And it's still sin if she throws it in front of him and he sins. But it's, there are degrees here, right? There are degrees of sexual sin. And at that point, a man, it's okay for a man to be able to objectively recognize that something is beautiful in the world that God made, that, oh man, 
you know, his eyes, he sees, you know, his, his, his wife, his uh, friend's family, his wife, their kids. He says, that's a beautiful family. What a glorious feminine woman. That's awesome. And he doesn't lust. He just sees what he sees and he, and he praises God for it and says, it's thankful to the Lord for the kind of world that he made. Okay. Women needed to hear when, when we're talking about modesty, the old uh, cliche that it's about honoring the, mm. the unpresentable parts. <laughs> it's about honoring them. It's about giving them greater honor, actually, than By your hands them. and your feet. or your Yeah, there is greater honor to, the, to a woman's nakedness that needs to be covered and preserved in the same way that if you own land in the desert in the Middle East and you had a spring on it, you would build a wall around that spring. You wouldn't just leave that spring to be polluted by animals and every passerby and people to do their laundry in. You have a precious rare thing in the middle of this desert. That's what female nakedness should be like. So when we're talking about it, pastorally, when I'm, you know, for example, when I preached um, in the Proverbs and was talking about bad sex was one sermon, good sex was the other sermon. It's important that when we, when we talk about this issue, that we also preach the flip side, that the goal of the preserving from the sin is to preserve and protect and actually properly use the good thing. And what that helps women to do in how they dress in public, well, it does, how, it, number one, it says, be free in the marriage bed with your husband. Right. Turn the lights on. Be naked. Be, I use the phrase that makes Pastor Dan uncomfortable all the time. Set a sexual feast in front of your husband and say, come and eat. Like, that's yeah. what you should be doing, ladies, in your, in your marriage bed. You should be saying, I want to be your sole source of sexual satisfaction. Come and enjoy what is yours. Come and take me. I'm yours. You've conquered, right? That's glorious. So that she can then know how to properly in public identify and say, I am a garden with a wall. I am a garden with a door. I'm a garden locked. And so, yeah. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to dress in a feminine way. I'm not going to wear androgynous, boxy, lesbian clothing. That's not modesty. <laughs> That's denying right. your nature in another direction. No, you can you wear a dress. Dresses are beautiful. Wear a beautiful, modest dress that doesn't cling to every you know, aspect of your 37 Cs, but that <laughs> yeah. you know, is glorious, beautiful, modest, chaste. Pick fabrics you like that your husband likes where he says, man, you look beautiful this morning. Uh, you just inspire me to go out and, you know, conquer. Keep, and when you do that, man, yeah. you, you're just, you're encouraging your husband. You are his glory. One, one thing, and I'll shut up, because I want to hear your take on this too. Yeah. When, when Paul in 1 Corinthians says, in 1 Corinthians 11, he says that man is the glory of God and woman is the glory of man. Thought a lot about that. Hmm. And, and this might be from the old friar Bill Mauser, uh, where I first heard this concept, but Biblically speaking, when you say that something is the glory of something else, what you mean is that it is iconic of it in a beautiful mm. way. So, for example, the prophets will say that the cedars are the glory of Lebanon in Isaiah. Right. And, and what that means is that for people who thought about Lebanon, they thought about the glorious forests of cedar that were beautiful. Mm. And that was iconic of it. So, in, this, in a similar way, feminine beauty is iconic of mankind. It's a glory. It's like when you think of mankind, one of the things that it should provoke in your memory is the glory of a beautiful woman. Hmm. So beauty is not bad. Beauty is actually iconic. It's the glory of a thing. Uh, glory is like uh, a thing 
the weighty goodness of a thing that is at peace with what it was made to be. So men who are being masculine to the glory of God created by God to be so are glorious. Women who are being feminine and beautiful and chaste and modest and self-controlled, and they're being glorious. They're being what they were made to be, and there's glory there. So when you start to deny that in either direction, towards androgyny or towards whoredom, you are, you are obscuring glory. You think you're unveiling glory. You're actually obscuring glory, and you're polluting your glory, and you're, you've forgotten the face of your father. Yeah, well, that, I mean, that, that's such a good point. Um, it, it made me think of two things, Brian. Number one, uh, having grown up in the purity culture, um, mm-hmm. it was sort of like the, we always got the don't. Um, I felt like the, like the three times I ever went to church, but okay, mm-hmm. it was still there. Um, <laughs> you know, don't do this. Like sex, it was almost like sex is bad, nakedness is bad, don't be a whore, it's mm-hmm. bad, you're going to be a whore, don't, don't do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things that I noticed and kind of shocked me uh, when I, you know, was converted, was in the church, reading scripture finally, um, reading Proverbs 5.18, and the father is saying to his son, I want you to be drunk with your wife's love and with her breasts. I, I, that, that's, I pray. that's a text I preached. Yeah. <laughs> in and the and good it's sex so sermon. great yeah. because it's, it's right there. And, and he says, as you said, drink water from your own cistern. Like, you don't want to drink from every well that the animals drop their fecal matter in and are dis- it's disgusting is the point. So again, it should be protected. But there should be, the, the point of that protection is that it, it makes it more beautiful. It makes it yeah. more refreshing. And yeah. um, I think it was R.C. Sproul uh, who said this, but he said, sex is like a river in a deep, deep canyon, like the Grand Canyon. If you have steep, rigid walls, it can flow with power through there. Like it's got yeah. you know, boundaries, firm boundaries about where it belongs. Yeah. But he said, what our culture is like is a river just flooding out on a plane. It just, it just spreads yeah. across a plane and it's muddy and yeah. you wouldn't drink from it. I mean, it, it becomes a polluted mess is the point. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I guess my question for you on this, and, and you've, you've hinted at this, you've, you've said it too, but on the one hand, I've seen like the whorishness, but I want to talk for a minute about why this frumpy dumpiness is next to godliness um, is also not the answer. I mean, I've seen this in a lot of the kind of, fundamentalist baptist charismatic camps where a woman should never wear makeup in public her hair everything she does should be as extremely plain boring and frumpy as possible (laughs) rich lusk actually told me this on on podcast i thought it was really funny but he was like yeah if a woman is going to be frumpy and dumpy and overweight and all those things like that's going to put its own unique stress on a marriage oh yeah right so so what's the problem with that ditch the problem with that ditch is that you, you're just denying nature. You're denying, uh, again, glo- and this is, this is my definition of glory. So it's open to, I think it is open to critique, and, and it's not intended to be a standalone, the only possible definition. Yeah. But I think glory is the weighty goodness. It's the brightness, the effulgence, the weighty goodness of a thing being what it was made to be or at hmm. peace with God in doing what it was made to do. That's why yeah. God, God is the ultimate, he's the source of all glory as the creator. But things, creative things have glory. They have yeah. their own, they start various from star and, and glory. That's talking about brightness. But the, you know, there's glory, creational order that's designed from feminine beauty. And there's mm. a glory there. 
And when you, the glory is for it to be a veiled thing that inspires men to want to win it, to go and pursue it, to go say, I'm going to go get my bride. Again, because that's what Christ did. He left the house of his father to win himself a bride through fighting with dragons and divine self-sacrifice. So men are to do that. Feminine beauty is designed to inspire that. So it should be veiled, but winnable, right? It should be winnable in the right way, which is to pursue marriage. And then once it's won, it's made to be like a great bottle of wine that's open that you enjoy. A spring is a better metaphor, right? Uh, in, in In a garden that you can open the door with, you have the key, you go in, it's your spring. No one else has been here. You're here. This is your thing. Drink in deep, uh, drink deeply, O oh lovers, and be drunk with love. Yeah. So the frumpy error is just another way of denying what feminine beauty is for hmm. and what, what the female form is for, which is for beauty to redound in praise so that the union of a bridegroom and his bride can result in life and fruitfulness. It's a parable of the gospel. Yeah. Right? You can deny it in both ways. Yeah, and I think it's huge, too. The other just practical aspect of it is, um, yeah, it does put stress on a marriage, I think, when a woman is not, you know, careful about her beauty, not only protecting it, but then also cultivating it, aiming it in the right places. Yeah. Um, You know, it's kind of the old adage about, like, people get married and then they let themselves go, and it's, yeah. I mean, that, that applies for men, too. Like, Absolutely. I have that conversation all the time. Like, you know, sex drive, yeah, it goes down when you're, 200 pounds overweight and that's oh yeah reality and have poor yeah. hygiene and all those things yeah you you you've got to be your glory too is which is strength and there's fitness and ability and, and capability yeah. there for men the, the the last thing i want to ask you brian is uh, one of the books that you've recommended to me i haven't read it yet but it sounds phenomenal is i believe called the public undressing of america uh, i can provide links for that in the show notes but yeah. uh, maybe if you would just give me a synopsis of what this book talks about and why it would be germane to this conversation. Yeah, it's a good practical book that's just short and to the point and uh, unashamed of being outside of the cultural zeitgeist. So the, I think it's Pollock is the author. Okay. Something, I can't remember his name uh, exactly, but he, one thing he does in the book that I think is really helpful for us in this actual contemporary cultural application of these things is he goes through the history of swimwear and he explains how culturally it was massively controversial, unthinkable for men and women to publicly bathe together. And they, he meant go swimming together. They just didn't do that generally. Like it right. just wasn't done because of this modesty issue until, you know, you get the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, these things start to erode. It explodes in the 60s. And as he's tracing this out, he goes through and he quotes directly. From the um, sartorial, um, the, the people that design clothing. And he, he shows how they did not accidentally make provocative clothing. They were intentionally trying to erode traditional Christian sexual ethics. And they were saying, we are designing clothing, swimwear. Swimwear is going to be our gateway. And that worked for the public undressing of America. And then we know that from swimwear, it's going to go in all other directions. We're going to yeah. get into film, we're going to get into acting, we're going to get into... And then pretty soon, guess what people are wearing? Like what my daughter and I, I took my kids to Lagoon, this theme park near our house, like three weeks ago. This woman walked in to the little waiting area, and I'm like, my arm around my little three-year-old girl. 
And this woman was wearing, I mean, her underwear crammed up her butt crack, boobs hanging out. Yep. And my little three-year-old girl goes, in a rather carrying whisper, uh, Daddy, why is her butt hanging out? <laughs> she must have heard it. I just, I didn't feel embarrassed at all. I was like, you should be embarrassed. I'm, I'm you are the one actually. with your butt hanging out. Yeah. So the pathway, though, he traces in the book is how we got there. How we yeah. got to where actually now it's not even swimming stuff anymore. And then he, he goes through some biblical standards of, of the, you know, the concept of nakedness and uncovering nakedness and, and how um, both men and women should think about modesty and how men can also be immodest physically, even though I do agree the main because of that anthropological insight about men wanting, loving to love and women loving to be loved. Um, but he goes into all that very practically, lays it out historically, biblically, and it, it's just helpful, very short punchy to the point. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, I'll definitely check it out. Encourage uh, the listeners of the show to check it out. Uh, the title, I looked this up while you were talking about it, Christian Modesty and the Public Undressing of America, and that is by Jeff Pollard. And again, Pollard. we'll yeah, we'll include uh, links to that in the show notes. Well, Brian, I really appreciate you coming on. It's been a really awesome discussion. Hopefully we'll... Uh, there's so much more to unpack, I think, regarding sexuality. That's like the uh, fault line of our, cu- our culture, I think. But at least this is a good place uh, to start. You got to jump in somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. It was a really fun conversation. Absolutely. Well, thanks, Brian. You got it. Once again, I want to thank all of our Patreon supporters, those who support through Patreon membership or the membership on the website. We deeply appreciate that. It goes a long way to crafting, creating, and producing this content, which takes, again, time and money. So thank you for your support. If you have been blessed, if you have benefited from the show, I would encourage you to check out Patreon or my website, ericcon.com. Go there and you can become a member for as little as $5 a month. Also, be sure to check out our online store. You can buy a wonderful green Hardman Podcast t-shirt. You can also buy Hardman Podcast pint glasses or sign up for the $20 a month VIP membership and we will send you a pint glass complimentary as part of that membership. Wherever you listen to your podcast and especially on Apple Podcasts, I would encourage you to go there and leave a five-star review. Again, we deeply, deeply, deeply appreciate all of your support. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Hardman Podcast. Until next time, men, stay frosty, fight the good fight, act like men.